Amen. Well, today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 25, where I'm embarking on a new series of sermons called Disciple. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' call to his first disciples in Matthew 4. It's verse 18 to 25. This is a reading of God's word. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning as we come to you. And we come bringing our anxieties, our pains, our distractions. And I pray, God, that we would be able to lay those down now so that we could hear your voice. And God, we confess that we need to hear from you so much. There's so many other things happening that we need your voice. So speak to us through your scripture, through your servant. Speak only your truth. Guide us by your spirit. We pray and plead for you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Today we're starting a new series of sermons on the idea of disciple. We're going to look at this idea of disciple. And uh, we're going to look at this idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. And we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew and we're going to track how Jesus... Uh, works with these group of men called disciples, and he calls them, we're going to follow them all the way to the cross on uh, Good Friday. And we're going to follow them finally to Easter Sunday. And we're going to go on a journey. This whole series is a journey that's going to culminate on Easter of following Jesus from the small port town of Galilee up to this place uh, called Jerusalem, and being called out of that to all the nations. Uh, we're going to look at this idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Alan Noble in his book, Disruptive Witness, says that we live now, today, he calls today a distracted secular society. He says right now we live in a distracted secular age. And by that he means, he talks about his own life. He says that when he wakes up in the morning, he used to wake up in the morning and is... Uh, alarm clock was his phone, and he says, that's convenient, because after I, I turn off my alarm clock, I can check my email, I can check my social media, all in bed, even before he got up, and he says that throughout the day, he would have his smartphone, even going down the stairs to work, he can check his tweets, he can think of a tweet, he can send it out, and he says when he got back from work, he would, uh, he would have his phone, and during the dishes, he would check out NBA clips, highlights, uh, he would consume media even when he was in the bathroom. 
he would have his phone. Don't act like you don't do that. And he had his phone in his bathroom. <laughs> every single minute, every, in the elevator, anytime he was doing anything, he had these distractions. Before he went to bed, he'd watch Netflix. And he says every part of his life was filled with all of these little distractions. And he says, you realize that, and he says that, you know, if you want to really think about being a disciple, if you want to think about eternity, it's really hard this, in this age because we have so many distractions. You know, that the, the idea of eternity is important, but let me just check my messages first before I think about that. I'll get to that maybe a little later on. And he says it's hard to be a follower of Jesus in a distracted secular age. We live in a distracted time that if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, you really need to think about it and devote yourself to it. But it's hard because we live in a secular, distracted age. So more than ever, what we need to do if we want to be a follower of Jesus is to hear the call of Jesus. There are all these other voices calling out for our time and our attention, but we need more than ever to hear the voice of Jesus the call of Jesus. In his call, what we're going to see today is the greatest call that we can ever hear. His voice is the greatest voice that we need to pay attention to. So as we start the sermon, we're going to look at this idea of the voice of God or the call of God in our life. And we want to look at three things. Number one, how, the, how Jesus' call is a gracious call. Secondly, it's the call of the king and finally, how we're called to answer that call. So the first point is this, is the gracious call of Jesus. Starting today, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. There are four Gospels. Matthew is chronologically usually the first that we read. And Matthew's is a, Matthew is an important writer because he was an actual disciple of Jesus. He's a, this is a great Gospel to read about discipleship because Matthew himself was a disciple. He was an apostle. He heard all of Jesus' sermons. He literally followed him. Matthew teaches us about what it means to follow Jesus. And we're starting by looking at Matthew 4, because that's when Jesus calls his first disciples. Jesus, at the very beginning of Matthew 4, begins his public ministry. He leaves Nazareth, his hometown, which was a small hillside community. Everybody knew each other in Nazareth. That's why he doesn't go back there, or he feels rejected there. And he leaves that small hillside community, and he goes to Galilee. Galilee was a bustling, thriving community. It was thriving essentially because of its commerce. It was near a lake, and it had a bustling fishing industry. Uh, So as Jesus starts his public ministry... He goes to this bustling town. How would he start his public ministry? How, do, how would he come out, if you will? How would he tell people who he was? You might think he would do miracles. He would preach. He would gather thousands of people. But he doesn't start there. Jesus, his first action is to call his disciples. That's the first thing that he does. That's the first uh, priority for Jesus was disciples. Discipleship. The most important thing for Jesus was making disciples. In fact, that's the first thing he does in the Gospel of Matthew. It's also the last thing he tells his disciples to do. The last statement of Jesus to his disciples is the Great Commission, in which Jesus says, Go and what? Make 
disciples of all the nations. The first thing Jesus does is he calls his disciples. The last thing that he does is he commands his disciples to make other disciples. Jesus was all about discipleship. That was his mission. Jesus wasn't just about making people believe things intellectually. What was foremost on Jesus' mind was discipleship. And throughout the series, we're going to explore the idea of discipleship. Uh, What is discipleship? Let's start here. The word disciple meant student. And by student, it doesn't just mean someone who went to a class and learned about things. That word disciple is deeper than that. It meant a lifelong commitment. It meant someone who was dedicating their life to to a specific calling and purpose. Uh, For instance, in the first century, if you're a blacksmith, you would have an apprentice or a disciple. And that apprentice would often live with you, live with the blacksmith. It would emulate his life and and he would learn all the skills He would learn a lifestyle of being a blacksmith. It was all-encompassing. Jesus wanted to call people not just to belief, but a certain way of living, a lifestyle, a path. That's what discipleship is about. It's a lifelong, life-learning commitment to a path. So who would Jesus call to be his first disciples? Matthew 4.18 Jesus' first call is two brothers. They're both fishermen. We see Peter, Simon Peter, and Andrew. In the first century, fishermen were largely uneducated. Uh, They were blue-collar. They were uh, men uh, who weren't movers and shakers. They weren't the most influential people in the society. They weren't wealthy. Their influence didn't go further than their boat. They were unlikely candidates. For Jesus to call as his first disciples. But not only did Jesus call uh, these two brothers, he doubles down on the fishing industry. He calls two other brothers, uh, James and John as well. They were mending their nets when Jesus calls them. These four individuals are the core four of the 12 disciples. Notice in the Gospels, not all the disciples are prominent, but these four would be the most prominent disciples. This core four was comprised, two, two pair of brothers, they were all fishermen. Why did Jesus call those men? You know, think about what Jesus could have done. He could have done miracles, and he's going to attract thousands upon thousands of people. Jesus could have taken the best and brightest from the crowd. He could have done interviews. He could have read resumes. And he could have selected the movers and shakers, the best, the brightest. But he doesn't. He calls these four fishermen, men who had no earthly qualifications. But not only that, not only were they not qualified in any earthly sense, they also weren't spiritually qualified. They were, in fact, moral failures. How do we know that? Well, in Luke's gospel, Luke actually goes a little deeper. He gives us a different angle. He covers the same terrain, Jesus calling Peter, but he tells us what Peter says. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter first sees Jesus, this is what he says. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter says, Jesus... 
You don't want anything to do with me. I'm, I'm bad news. I've done a lot of bad things, Jesus. I'm not the kind of guy you want. Peter knew his own heart. One of the things that we're going to see with Peter is that he was right. You know, Peter was a mess. Uh, all throughout the gospel is Peter says all the wrong things. Uh, he fails Jesus in multiple ways. And at the very time of crisis in Jesus' life, he denies knowing Jesus three separate times. But what, is, what, why does, what does Jesus say to Peter? Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I know all about you. I know your failures and your brokenness, but follow me. Come with me on a journey. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to restore you. Follow me on this journey. Following Jesus is a journey. You know, some of us might feel like we don't, have, we don't have it in us. We might feel like we've done a lot of bad things. We've made a lot of mistakes in our life. We feel unqualified. But Jesus says to us, follow me. I can heal you. I can forgive you. I can restore you. Uh, I love this phrase. Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He doesn't send out... And read resumes. He doesn't call the qualified, the most likely, the most confident. Rather, he qualifies the called. He takes people who are unprepared and unworthy and he forgives them and restores them and he builds them up. God's call, Jesus' call is a call of grace. It's a call for broken people. It's a call for unworthy people. I love the story of David in 1 Samuel 22. David is on the run from Saul, the king at the time. And Saul is threatened by David. He feels like he is next in line. He's, so he, uh, he tries to kill David. David's on a run. He goes into the wilderness. He finds himself in a cave. And word is out that David is there. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there they were with him, about 400 men. The men who joined David in this cave had all kinds of issues. They were in debt, they were divorced. They were angry. They were bitter. These were the most broken men who had nowhere to go. Uh, there were, in every society, there are winners and there are losers. There are winners who have gained the most money and acclaim and people followed them. And they were losers who had lost out on life, who were on the outskirts of life. And they were bitter and they were depressed. And they were angry at everybody. And these were the men that all came to David. They, were, they had nowhere to go. They were bankrupt. They were bitter. They were in debt. They were divorced. And David said, I will be your commander. I will lead you. It says David became their king. He became their leader. And you know what David does with those men? He makes them into warriors. He makes them into mighty men. He eventually leads this ragtag group of men to be an army. He becomes the next king. 
And guess what he does with those men? He takes all of them with him. And you know, why were all these men so loyal to David? When you read the end of David's life, he had all these mighty men and they risked their life for David. Why? Because they knew what David did for him. You know, they were like, David, man, you took me from this, this place where I was an outcast and you made me into a man and you brought me to this palace. And I'm so indebted to you, David. That's why they were willing to die for David. They knew where they had come from. They knew what David had done for them. You know, Jesus, who Jesus is, he's the greater David. He takes people who are broken and bitter and angry and broken. And Jesus says, I will be your king. I will, I will heal you and restore you. I'm going to bring you into this kingdom that's beautiful and amazing. And that's the call of Jesus. It's a gracious call. It's a call for anyone who is in need, anyone who is bitter, anyone who is in debt, anyone who's hungry. The only thing you need is need. It's a gracious call. It's the call of Jesus. And here's the second thing. It's a gracious call, but secondly, it's also a sovereign call. You know, when you think about this whole call of Jesus, uh, it's a command. Read with me verse 19 again, and sometimes you can miss it, especially if you've been in church in a while. You've heard this verse before. In verse 19 it says, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And notice closely that this is not a question. Jesus does not say to Peter and Andrew, Do you want to follow me? It's not an invitation. It's actually semantically a command. He orders them Follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And this command, it rubs against our American sensibilities. This idea that we all have choice and freedom. When you want a job, uh, you seek it. And even if there are, if you're in a place where there are other employers are seeking employees, you might find headhunters. These are people who are recruiters. And they can recruit you to their company But they can't order you to change jobs and join their company. They can only compel you. They can give you a compelling offer, a salary, a package, perks. But they can't demand that you join them. In our country, the closest thing that we can come to uh, this command is the military draft. You know, in our country, uh, the U.S. draft called conscription has been used five times in conflicts. In the Vietnam War, World War II, the, uh, the United States ordered every male aged 18 to 25 to register for the draft. Something you had to do. You had to comply. In Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, he details how this was uh, during World War II. This was not something people felt like they had to do, but also something that they wanted to do. Many people wanted to do. In fact, there are people who are teenage, teenage boys, 15, 16, 17 years old, who would in many cases lie about their age so that they could be drafted. They could fight. Why? Well, they love their country, but they also felt that this was a worthy cause. They want to be part of fighting evil in the world. They wanted their life to matter. The call of Jesus is the call of the king. It's a mandate, 
But it's a glorious call. It's a call to live for something more. In verse 19, what is the call to Peter? He says to Peter, Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You were fishing for fish. That's great. That's amazing. That's a beautiful career. But I want to make you into a fisher of men. What does that mean? Well, in ancient times, the waters were terrifying. People drowned in the water regularly. It was a place of great fear and uncertainty. And what Jesus was saying to Peter is, Peter, I want your mission in life be to take men from anxiety, from sin, from death, the waters of sin and death, I want you to rescue them. Be an instrument of rescuing men and women and bringing them into this new life. One of the other ways Jesus talks about mission is this idea of kingdom. In fact, right after Jesus calls his first disciples, he starts preaching. What is he preaching about? This is really the heart of Jesus' teaching. It's about the kingdom. Read with me verse 23. And Jesus says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus' first sermon and his, the theme of all his sermons was the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom is the reign or the rule of God. The kingdom is about the king and his reign, his rule. And what is his rule like? And the answer is, it's, that's why he does all kinds of healings. Why does Jesus do all these miracles right after he talks about the kingdom? And the answer is the miracles... gives us a tangible illustration of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the idea that we are all, we live in a world that is broken, that is unhinged, that is unmoored. We live in a world that's falling apart. And the idea of the kingdom of God is that Jesus, the true king, has come to make everything right, to make everything new, to make everything pure, to bring us back estranged people back to the Father. He's come to heal us. He's come to make everything right. Jesus has come to bring heaven down to earth. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, would you join in this mission? Would you join in this kingdom cause to bring heaven down, to bring renewal to this broken world? And what's what's Peter's response? What is the only way you can respond to the king of the universe who gives you that call? What does Peter do? It says in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Both set of brothers, when they hear this call from the king, what do they do? It says immediately, instantly, what do they do? They left their nets and their boats. James and John also leave their father. And what is that a symbol of? It means that their whole life and the direction of their life has changed. Uh, The fishermen, by leaving their nets, were leaving that life behind. They were saying that now their life would be defined by following Jesus. It's interesting because we later read that Peter 
and uh, the apostles, they actually go back to fishing in some sense later on. And what that means is that they, it's not like they left fishing behind forever for good. They would never fish again. But what that meant is that now their chief allegiance and their identity was in Jesus. No, no longer in fishing. That the direction, the priorities of their life have changed. When you become a Christian, it's not like you quit your job. Uh, you quit whatever is happening in your life. But it means that now the chief direction of your life has changed. The priority of your life has changed. Now you're not first a, a teacher or a lawyer or Asian or Latino. You are still those things, but not primarily. Primarily, you are a follower of Jesus on mission with him. Uh, three years ago, I led an evangelism group uh, in downtown and just a lot of people gathered together, and they were all from all walks of life. This one woman in particular started coming out to this Bible study and said she had never, she hadn't been to church since she was a five-year-old girl. She said, That's, my grandparents took me a few times. This is the last time I stepped in church. She didn't really know a lot about the Bible at all. And throughout the course of a year, we studied the Gospel of John together. And study the person of Jesus. And she was very compelled by this person of Jesus. A year later, she was baptized. And she made a profession of faith. And in a testimony, she was talking about what Jesus meant to her. And she said, initially, I didn't really know Jesus at all. But she says, uh, she used the illustration of Jenga. You know, Jenga is that tower game. I play that game with my kids all the time. And in that game of Jenga, you're trying to keep the tower together. There's always one piece, usually at the bottom of the Jenga stack, that cannot be moved. If you move that, that block, the whole tower comes tumbling down. And she says, what Jesus means to me is that he's that last piece on my Jenga stack. You know, he's my cornerstone. He's the person I've built my whole life on now. And if I move him, I move everything. You know, this woman has understood this whole idea of disciple. That Jesus is not just one more thing in my life. No, he's the foundational thing in my life. My whole life is built on Jesus. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone whose whole life, uh, the direction, trajectory, left everything. I follow him. I'm compelled by this person of Jesus. And the final point is this, is that we too then, like James and John, Andrew and Peter, we are called by God in Jesus, and we need to answer that call. What does that mean? All throughout the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus is calling people to discipleship. But here's the thing. The vast majority of people do not actually hear the call. They hear the messages they see the miracles, but the vast majority of people do not end up being disciples. One way to understand discipleship is to contrast it with the crowds that gather around Jesus. In fact, that's the very next group of people we see. In Matthew 4, verse 24, right after he calls his disciples, it says this. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. 
At the end of Matthew 4, Jesus' fame spreads. The word is going out. People are talking about Jesus. He's this great prophet, but more than that, he's a healer. He's healing all kinds of diseases. And people who had permanent, serious injuries would travel far distances to come and see Jesus. Why were they seeking Jesus? Were they seeking to be a follower of Jesus? Or were they seeking miracles from Jesus? And right from the jump, what Matthew do, is doing is he's separating two classes of people. There are the disciples who have left everything to follow Jesus. And there's the crowds who are there for the miracles. And Matthew wants to keep in mind that there are always two groups of people in the vicinity of Jesus. There are disciples and there's a crowd. What's the difference? Well, the disciples were committed to Jesus through thick and thin. They were there for the long haul. The crowd was fickle. The crowd, often when they heard things they did not like about Jesus, or when Jesus receives pressure from the authorities, the crowd always leaves. They're not always there with Jesus. Disciples were committed. Disciples were there to serve. They were going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be part of the kingdom. The crowd was just there for the miracles. They just wanted things from Jesus. They wanted blessings from Jesus. And when they, were, they, when they did not receive the blessings, they left. They're fair weather. They were fickle. Disciples, here's the things about the, the crowds. Jesus did not trust the crowds. It says that Jesus did not trust the crowds. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they only wanted things from him. Just his blessings. That's why the vast majority of Jesus' time was spent with his 12 disciples, not the 12,000 crowds, people in the crowd. Think about that. Jesus' vast majority of time on this earth was spent with 12 men. The bulk of his ministry was about not the crowds, but 12 men. And guess who changed the world? Was it 12,000 people that changed the world in Acts? It's 12 men changed the world. You know, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he only had a handful of followers. And by objective standards, we would think Jesus' ministry was a failure. He only had a handful of disciples who followed him to the very end. But no, it wasn't about the quantity of disciples, of, of followers. It was about the quality of disciples. Jesus is not interested in masses of people who simply believe certain things, but what he's interested in, just a few very committed people who love him, who want to follow him, who've left everything to know him. So the question for you this morning is this, are you part of the crowd, this fair weather, they're just here for blessings, or are you a disciple? Jesus said, broad is the road to destruction and vast majority of people enter into it. But there is one road, very few people find it. It's a road traveled by disciples who love Jesus. This morning, here's the thing about crowds uh, that I want you to know in the Gospel of Matthew. Nobody's ever changed in a crowd. There are all these people following Jesus in the crowd, but nobody's ever changed in the crowd. Who are the only people changed in the crowd? Changed, And the only people who are changed from the inside out by Jesus are people who step out of the crowd into a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. 
That's the only way to be changed. You might get some tangential blessings being in the crowd. Only way for your life to change is to step out of the crowd into a personal encounter with Jesus. To speak to him. To know him. This morning, God asks you to step out of the crowd into discipleship. But when, when Jesus calls you into discipleship, you will change. God will show you amazing, beautiful things. Jesus says to you this morning, follow me. You know, I'll lead you. I'll restore you. I will heal you. Jesus says, if you follow me, it's not going to be the easiest road. In fact, it's going to be really difficult. But I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to walk with you. And you're going to see amazing Beautiful things. Follow along with me. Jesus says, follow along with me to the cross. I'm going to go to the cross ultimately where I'm going to die for you. But hang on. I'm going to to resurrect from the grave. I'm going to defeat sin and death. And I'm going to ascend to my Father's right hand. And I'm going to give you my spirit. And you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Make disciples. Make disciples. I want to close uh, by talking about a man. Uh, I want to close the sermon by talking about a man named Missionary Park. He's someone that my wife knew very well. He was a missionary to a country called Uzbekistan. And he has passed away. He passed away a couple years ago. He's with the Lord now. But his legacy lives on. I met him briefly when he visited City Light in the early days to bless it, to pray for it after he was retired. And his legacy is an amazing legacy. He spent 20 years as a missionary in a small town in Uzbekistan. And most of his ministry for 20 years was discipling just a few individuals. Over the course of 20 years, he discipled just five people. His, his fruit was five people over the course of 20 years. I can imagine uh, Missionary Park visiting, coming back to the United States to give re- missions report, and the church boards would say, like, what did you do in the last 20 years? And he's like, I discipled five men and women. And I can imagine the churches would be like, that's it? Like, that's like one person every four years. Like, wh- what exactly are you doing there in Uzbekistan? Should we continue to support you with our missions dollars? How can you be doing... How come you're not doing more? Where are the crowds? Where are all these ministries? Where are these health clinics? What are you doing? Missionary Park really loved people. And he poured his life into the lives of just a few people. One of the men that he poured his life into was a very shy, introverted teenager who, had a, who was a skeptic, diehard skeptic. A rational skeptic at all these arguments against Christianity, very well read, very well studied, very socially awkward, and Missionary Park poured his life into him. Took him out to eat, studied the Bible with him, you know, just kind of pouring his life into him. And today, uh, years later, this happened years later, he became a believer was compelled by not just scripture, but this man's life. And now he's one of the most prominent politicians in the country. And in a country that is over 90% Muslim, one of the most prominent politicians in that country is a Christian. Uh, Other women from his ministry of the five, they're missionaries in other countries. 
starting vibrant ministries. Um, here's a man who is not about quantity. Like, I'm going to have thousands of people. I'm, he's like, my whole legacy is five people. I'm going to pour my life out into them. And it was that mustard seed that was planted that exploded into a, uh, my wife says that if you go to that small town now, everybody knows his name. Everybody knows that missionary's name in that city. I mean, that's the impact of someone who is not about numbers, who is not about flash, but who's going to pour his life into many. The strategy of Jesus is not to have millions upon millions of followers in his life, but he's like, I'm going to invest in 12. That's it. (laughs) That's all I need. It's not about millions and millions of people. It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. And what Jesus says to you this morning is that it's not about all these people. It's just about the number one. I, just me, if I can be a faithful follower of Jesus, just me, I could have an exponential impact in my family, my friends, my workplace. Jesus says one is a majority. That's all I need. I just need one person. It's not about a mass movement, but it's about the quality of one disciple. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, man, you're going to mess up a whole bunch of times, but I'm going to build my church on one person, you of all people. Peter says, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. Jesus says, I'm going to build my back on you, build my church on your back, the back of a sinner. One is a majority. And as we close the sermon, all God needs from you is you to make a difference. Just a committed person who has left everything. A disciple is someone who says, I will go wherever you lead and do whatever you say. That's what a disciple says to Jesus. I'll go wherever you lead. I will do whatever you say. And guess what? If you live that way, Jesus says to you, you will see greater things than you can ever imagine. If you do whatever Jesus says and go wherever he leads, Jesus says, I will do greater things than you can ever, ever imagine. Please join me in prayer. Father, I just pray for our church and our heart and our desire at City Light is not so much quantity, not having a mega church of thousands of people, but Lord, I know your heart is just the quality of disciples. Forgive me for seeking numbers and not disciples. This morning, pray that many would hear the call, not just for you to be one of a lot of other things in their life, but you to be the cornerstone. Pray, God, that at at our church, you would be calling disciples called us to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. Father, I pray that we'd be on the road. I thank you that discipleship is a journey. We're not there all at once. It's fits and starts. So I pray that this morning we'd be on a journey to start discipleship, that we'd just get started on a road. And I pray that you'd lead us, lead your leaders lead your elders, lead your deacons, lead your community group leaders. I pray that you'd lead us into a more fully committed relationship with you. I pray as we do that, lives would change. I pray as we do that, we would see other people's lives change. 
pray this with faith and confidence in your promises and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.